episode 34 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and our guest this week is Keith Goldner, Vice President of Data Science at FanDuel, the gaming company that's probably best known for daily fantasy sports. Keith oversees FanDuel's sports modeling and innovation. He's also the chief analyst for NumberFire, the sports projection company he helped start straight out of college about a decade ago. Keith will talk about what he does, how he does both parts of his job, and I also wanted to talk to him because his career path and career decisions offer a lot of insight for anyone interested in joining the sports analytics industry, whether you're in school or looking to break into the field or just curious about sports and analytics in general. Keith answers a lot of questions that he and I, and I'm sure lots of people in the industry, get asked a lot, so I'd like to think this is almost an FAQ of sorts for anyone interested in a sports analytics career. In our conversation, Keith and I will also chat about his work with NBA teams, both a decade ago and today, the most important thing in communicating data, how to break into the sports analytics field, what he's looking for when hiring, the three main avenues for sports analytics jobs, the value of internships, majoring in math at Northwestern, his tough decision to choose a startup over a team job right out of school, differences between backward-looking and forward-looking modeling, the state of field hockey analytics, and hanging out with Shaq. Then True Media's Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with FanDuel VP of Data Science, Keith Goldner. We're joined now on Expected Value by Keith Goldner, Vice President of Data Science, Sports Modeling, and Innovation at FanDuel. Keith, welcome to the show. Let's start very high level. What does the VP of Data Science and everything else do at FanDuel? Yeah, so um, the, my technical title is the VP of Sports Modeling and Innovation, and that's just a fancy way of saying that we use data science to man, uh, model sports in general, as opposed to doing stuff more on the marketing or customer analytics side of things. So. Uh, I'm doing kind of the same type of stuff that you would see um, people who work professionally for teams doing, which is modeling the players, teams, and games, both on the evaluation side and predictive side to see how um, we can best estimate how they're going to perform. And then that goes, I mean, FanDuel, most known, at least me, from kind of a, a daily fantasy type of angle. So everything you're doing, is that is the goal to like create better uh, lines or prices or things like that? Or what, what are you kind of working toward with all the modeling? Yeah. So in the beginning, kind of before sports betting, um, it was mostly to predict player projections for fantasy sports and daily fantasy sports. So to help you win your fantasy football league, we're trying to come up with the most accurate projections for your players um, and to optimize your lineups around that. And then as stuff has so slowly shifted over uh, onto the sports betting side of things with new states coming online, we can use those same projections and same methodologies to help price uh, the major markets as well as player prop markets so that you can go and um, look at uh, how many passing yards or how many rushing yards or how many catches a, a player is going to have. So take me through the process if you can. So I'm, I'm just thinking of how we'll just say a, a DFS price is set. So is it running projections and then comparing what you know the projections are to each other so hey this guy projects to be the best quarterback so uh, he gets a high this price something like that or how does what's the kind of process like to set whether it's a daily uh, price whether it's a certain line can you walk through how all everything kind of goes into that yeah so interestingly enough my team actually does not do the uh, salary pricing for the mm -hmm. daily fantasy but in general it's a similar process where you're looking at how players have performed historically how they're projected to perform based on matchups 
and then making an adjustment um, to those historical salaries based on those factors. Um, but it's, yeah, again, it's the same idea. You're trying to project how the player is going to perform and match up a salary based on the salary cap um, that is fitting for that performance. So what's a normal day look like for you, FanDuel-wise? I mean, are you you're in the weeds? Is it kind of more overseeing processes, things like that? What's a normal day look like for you? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So at this point, I manage a team of four data scientists um, and a couple of uh, analysts who are working more on the day-to-day uh, qualitative side of stuff as news comes out to adjust projections and making sure everything looks good. Um, day-to-day is everything in the life of a data scientist. So data collection, data management, making sure pipelines and processes are running smoothly, and then actually the modeling side of things. Um, and then one of the things that I enjoy the most is actually building the tools on the front end for whether it's someone internally at FanDuel to use or a customer to use um, so that when you have a good model, you can actually get that information to help power empower smarter decision-making. Um, so generally, it's a little bit of both. And then uh, data scientists in general, when we're modeling these sports, a lot of it's longer-term projects. So coming up with larger simulation-based models um, that takes a long amount of time, especially when you need the tech integration and making sure things run as quickly as possible, that sort of thing. What are the keys for that front-end stuff? Because that's so super important in turning uh, complicated things into easy-to-use things for you know, non-data scientists and such. What are the keys as you kind of go to put things together and make them easy to use? Yeah, so the most important thing is understanding your audience, right, and understanding who the stakeholders are because depending on how um, how they view things um, or how um, how capable they are mathematically, you can be extremely advanced with it or extremely simple. In general, my attitude is regardless of the audience, keep it as simple as possible. And then if people want to learn more, they're going to ask you for more details. Um, the problem with sending a super long email explaining everything you did is that it's going to end up getting skipped and it, it won't getting used. And I've actually had, I've always focused on trying to communicate as effectively as possible because I know that it's not going to get used if people don't understand what it is. And I've had experiences where I uh, I was working with a team and I built this tool that I was super proud of. And I sent an email. I thought I was explaining it perfectly well. And I just heard crickets. And then about <laughs> six months later, I was sitting uh, in the video room kind of preparing for the draft. And someone asked a question. I said, oh, actually, that's exactly what this tool I does I built does. Um, They're like, oh, we didn't realize that's what it was. And now it's probably the thing they use most out of anything I've ever built. It almost never got used because I didn't do an effective job at communicating what I was putting forward. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge for sure. I and mean, that's what we do at, at True Media is basically, you know, a user interface for teams and media's all their data. And it is a challenge because for us at least, sometimes we have something that's great if you're an intermediate or an expert user and getting those novices in is tricky sometimes. It's like, oh, it's easy, just do this and this and this. Uh, but they never get to that point, like you said, if they have to go through documentation or it's not intuitive. So yeah, that's a that's a tough thing for sure. Right. And when you're talking to a lot of these decision makers, whether it's a customer or a, a general manager, they have a very good intuitive understanding of sports themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they can't understand what you're doing, but you have to right. put it in the right framework where they can kind of see exactly what it is that you're going for, which is the biggest yep. challenge. So you're also involved with NumberFire as their chief analyst. You've been with them since about 2011, shortly after they got going. What goes into the role that you have there? How is that integrated with FanDuel? Yeah, so um, I helped uh, found NumberFire right out of college, and we were acquired by FanDuel in 2015. Um, generally, we were building projections and tools to help people play fantasy sports and daily fantasy. 
uh, we're still maintaining and running the NumberFire site and NumberFire brand. And a lot of times we kind of use it as a, like a testing ground or sandbox because it's a uh, generally like a higher, more detailed level of user there. There are people who are more into the fantasy sports or, or daily fantasy. So uh, we can use that to roll out some tools and see how they respond and get feedback. Um, so at this point, I'm still kind of making sure that all the a lot of our stuff, the projections are running on a day-to-day basis um, and that uh, our our partnership deals and that sort of stuff are, are still ongoing. So we're still kind of running number fire in a similar way to, I would say like Instagram is still running, even though it's mm-hmm. owned by Facebook. And at the same time, a lot of the resources and data that we've used is now being used on FanDuel, both in the daily fantasy product and the sports betting product to um, help make that product better as well. One question kind of goes on both the FanDuel side and maybe the number fire side is where, where's your data come from? I mean, you're obviously not a league or the, the entity that is tracking a lot of this stuff. Where do you pull your data and then how do you kind of put it all together as you get it into these models and such? Yeah, so at this point, now that we're fairly official, uh, most of what we're getting is through paid partnerships with official data providers, the mm-hmm. sport radars of the world, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, previously, and still in some cases, depending on what it is that we're looking for, um, it's a lot of web scraping, finding publicly available data that we can use to uh, make our projections and tools better. Um, at the very beginning, that was the main thing we were doing is just finding publicly available data and yeah. using it. Um, and now that we're more legit, we're paying for higher fidelity feeds that are more reliable and right. have more data. So I'd like to basically kind of trace your career path because I think you've been in some positions. I know I get asked a lot about, uh, you probably do too, just spots that people are interested in and can learn from. And so you've had some kind of good inflection points, if you will, over your career. So let's go all the way back to your days, uh, going into college. So you went to Northwestern. What were you thinking career-wise, maybe sports-wise when you entered school? Yeah. So when I came into school, I wasn't thinking about sports. I've always been a huge sports fan, but wasn't thinking about sports as a viable career path. I always knew I wanted to go to the math route. I was a strong math student. Um, and I went the pure math route, which was in retrospect, a mistake. Definitely should have gone more on the applied side of things, but um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was thinking maybe actuarial stuff, maybe um, going to teaching. I took a couple of classes around both of those. And then uh, I kind of learned about this sports analytics field. I was reading um, The Blind Side uh, by Michael Lewis, uh, Mm -hmm. the same author of Moneyball. And in it, Ben Alomar has a study about how passing is much more efficient than rushing in the NFL. And I saw that and was like something that I always believed and was like, I never thought about using math to show this. So Mm -hmm. I actually reached out to him at the time. This was back in maybe 2009. And he had just started working for the Oklahoma City Thunder, said he could use some help internship. And um, I, he basically helped start my career in sports analytics as, as a result. That's funny. That's not the Michael Lewis book that most people right. reference exactly. to pull them into sports analytics. So, okay. I want to go back to what you said about uh, you chose math, pure math as a major, as opposed to applied or, or data science, whatever it might be. Can you kind of lay out those differences and, and maybe the, the pros and cons of what you said about choosing different ones, kind of depending on what direction you want to go? Sure. Yeah. So pure math is, is it's almost more like English than it is math. It's it's all proofs. And basically, once I got into that, I realized it was not the portion of the math, the really quantitative part that I enjoyed. Applied is more taking traditional math and, and using it towards problems, which is essentially what sports analytics is. Um, I did take a probability sequence during my time um, at Northwestern that was probably the most valuable course I did because a lot of what I do is understanding probability and probability distributions to see what are the different potential outcomes and and how likely they are. Also, in retrospect, if I had to do it all over, I definitely would have taken some CS 
classes and learned mm -hmm. computer programming. I ended up having to do that all on my own after college as I was uh, helping with NumberFire, just because I realized that I couldn't go and get data. I couldn't go and change the algorithms. I couldn't go and make changes to the tools. I would have to ask somebody to do it the entire time. And very quickly, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to learn this. Otherwise, this is going to take forever to get anything done. And again, like I mentioned, actually having the final product of a tool that you've built is, to me, what's kind of the most enjoyable part of what I do is seeing that actually get used. So that's definitely something that I would consider doing if I were to go back and do it again. I like the that math is English comparison you made because I, I took a couple kind of calc type classes in college and was thinking about the same thing. And then I kind of had that same realization you had and, and went a different route. And you know, that was even well before that when data analytics from a sports standpoint was even less of a thing. So I didn't have a book to find or, or whatever. But uh, for, so you worked the Thunder. You also worked with the Sixers uh, early on. You mentioned how that came about. What what were you doing for those NBA teams back, you know, we're talking 10 years ago or so? Yeah. So with the Thunder, I was mostly doing data collection. I was charting games to collect data that at the time was not collected. Um, how much time was on the shot clock when shots were going off and, and tipped balls and that sort of thing to help for analysis that wasn't being done. And again, uh, Ben at the Thunder was like super helpful in my career in terms of introducing me to people as well so that I could help build my network. With the, with the Sixers, uh, I'm from Philadelphia originally. So it was a summer internship. I was actually working with the late Harvey Pollock, who was the mm -hmm. a statistician from the ABA NBA merger. Yeah. It, it, uh, you look at the famous picture of Wilt Chamberlain with the holding up the 100. It's actually his stat sheet that uh, the 100 is written on. So nice. I was helping him compile his, he does put out like a statistical yearbook every year and um, adding some new stats to that as well as uh, helping kind of increase the efficiency of putting that together. That was my main stuff with them. So a lot more data gathering and such than than teams have to do now. I know you do some consulting for an NBA team now without getting into the weeds or you know violating privacy laws or whatever. Uh, how has the NBA data work evolved since then? Obviously, you're doing different sorts of stuff now than you did then. So what, what's different now? How are teams working better with numbers and such? Yeah, so there's just a ton more data available now. So there's a lot more that you can do with it. Um, at its core fundamental, it's not crazy different from what was being done back then, which is that you're trying to find kind of marginal inefficiencies where you can help your team's chances of winning by half a percent here, half a percent there. And that's that's ultimately the goal of what you're doing. It's not like you're going to find something that makes your team the best team in the league just with one little uh, study that you did. It's just, how can I make my team more efficient? How can I make my team better to help them win more games and ultimately win a championship? So going back to the you know how you connect with the thunder you said you connect with ben alomars by reaching out to him a lot of questions i get are you know how do i get noticed or how do i get my work public out there make these connections what's your advice to you know a student or someone looking to get in the field who's just trying to you know make a name is maybe overstating it but just kind of get out there a little bit and and have some recognition or get someone to you know, hey pay attention to me sort of thing yeah i mean the biggest challenge is getting your foot in the door and uh, you can't be scared to send out cold emails. Obviously, you want to be as respectful as you can in the cold emails because people are getting lots of those emails. Um, and you want to just basically convey that you're willing to work hard and ask if they have any advice. That's kind of the first step. And you can send out, like a lot of people that I know send out emails to every single pro team or every pro team in a league. And if there's 30 teams, you may get 10 responses and nine of those are no's and one of them's a maybe. And that maybe is the type of thing like with me for the Sixers that could potentially turn into an opportunity. As far as actually kind of legitimizing yourself once you've 
made some of those connections and, and beyond the networking portion of it, um, having work that is geared towards the goal of whatever organization you're trying to join um, that you can then show to them is really important. So what I mean by that is if you're trying to work with a team, which most people are, not everyone, but most people are, you if you're doing a project, you want to be able to answer the question, how is this going to help a team win? Um, a lot of times we see people like, I came up with a really cool new college basketball ranking system, and they might be using some really cool mathematical tools, but a pro team in any league is not going to really care that you came up with some new ranking system for March Madness. Um, they want to see something where when they look at it, they're like, oh, that's really cool. I don't want any other teams to have this. I'm going to scoop this person up so that no one else can have this competitive advantage. And then you can get your work out there either by sending it in those emails or um, I was actually, I think it was Sam Hinkey who ta- told me to start a blog. He said that they had recruited two or three of their analysts at the time when he was at the Rockets through their blog. So I started my own blog on football analytics. And that way you can even just send that in those emails to say, hey, here's the type of work that I'm doing. Um, and just let me know if there's anything I can do to help. And so it sounds like I've heard this from people before. What you are doing, generally speaking, is almost as important as like in the weeds, how how you're doing it. Like they may not care as much of the specific details of the model, but the show that how the wheels are turning in your head and how you're able to work through questions and answers, things like that. Is that fair to yep. say? Yeah, exactly. And it's the sim- same thing when I'm hiring at FanDuel, what, the, what mm-hmm. I'm hiring for is I'm not hiring the people who are the best, who have the best technical skill set. I'm not hiring the people who are the most technical, technologically accomplished. I'm hiring the best problem solvers. I'm hiring people who I can tell are asking the right questions and then saying, okay, here's how I would approach that. And to me, anybody who has that like problem solving mentality um, and enjoys the space can learn the technical skill set. Like obviously I didn't have any computer programming background and I was able to learn that. So again, I'm just looking for smart people who are want to challenge themselves, who are go-getters and most of all, ask the right questions. So you mentioned how you know everyone wants to work, work for a team and I think that's generally the glamorous path that people who want to get into sports analytics focus on because it's the most public and things like that. You've sort of done that and also you forged this different path through uh, Numberfire, FanDuel, et cetera. So what do you say to someone who's who asks about that? What's out there beyond team jobs is a question I get a lot. What do you how do you respond to that? Yeah, so there are kind of three main avenues that you can go for sports analytics. First is the team, and that's what most people know about. The second is more what I would call the media route, which is what I would consider FanDuel and um a lot of organizations like that where you're working with private companies and putting out either tools or uh, content. It can just be, you can be a writer in articles um, that's sports analytics driven that consumers want to want to see. Um, so that's, I would say the second kind of big avenue. And the third is the academic route. Um, and there are a lot of people who are in acad- academia who kind of use sports analytics uh, and that sort of thing to uh, do their research and come up with new methodologies and, and new findings. So I want to go back to Northwestern. You mentioned the the Sixers internship. You interned at ESPN for a summer. Uh, when I was there, I think we saw each other like twice because I was uh, covering a World Cup. What do you say to students looking to find this right internship somewhere? I, I know I'll say for me, it was something that wasn't stressed enough uh, when I was in college to find that right uh, sort of thing or, or go for something like that. So what's kind of the importance of internships for kids going through the college process? Yeah. So I, to me, like experience is great. You might learn a new skill, but internships, at least in my opinion, are not as much about the actual experience side of it. It's much more about the networking side of it and um, about kind of the resume building. So you talked about the ESPN internship. The only reason that I got the ESPN internship, at least to mm-hmm. my understanding, was because I had 
the Oklahoma City Thunder and Philadelphia 76ers on my resume. They were just starting up the kind of analytics department or were about to start up the analytics department. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, this guy has analytics experience with professional teams. It would be interesting to pick his brain. And that's really what got my foot in the door there. So it's kind of like a domino effect where once you get your foot yeah. in the door somewhere and you have this resume builder, it piques other people's interest in terms of uh, that sort of thing. And then the networking is just when you're there, take full advantage of spreading your network as wide as possible, getting to know people because almost all jobs come from someone that you know um, and having that that experience like in any other industry, networking is extremely important. And then after college, you said you, you turned down some offers to work for teams and you joined Numberfire, which was just getting started. What was appealing about that? Why join a relative startup instead of going the you know more obvious route, at least, of joining a team and doing work there? Yeah, so that, that was this was one of the most difficult decisions I ever made, and I actually got counsel from a lot of people in the sports analytics industry for the best way to go about it. I ultimately went the startup route because I felt like if I was ever going to, it was something that I knew nothing about, and I felt mm-hmm. like if I was ever going to take a risk and learn about it, it was coming right out of school, not when I was older and married and right. had kids sort of thing. So um, that was really exciting to me, and I also felt like if I went the startup route, I could kind of build a brand for myself as well as work across multiple sports as opposed to um, just being in one sport. And the teams that I was talking to at the time, there were some pretty exciting opportunities, but it also depends on the organization that you're going to work for. And my uh, concern was that I was going to be kind of sitting in a a closet somewhere, crunching numbers, and what I was doing was never going to see the light of day. So I felt like there was a lot more upside going the startup route. And if I the startup collapsed after a year or two, like like most startups do, I could always go back and try to find one of those kind of entry-level uh, gigs with a, with a team. So we're talking, you know, not that long ago, but 10 years ago, as you said, with an NBA team, maybe wasn't as appealing as it would be now, just because the data was different. As you said, teams weren't as into data, generally speaking, I guess. So I guess it was kind of a, you're making a decision in, in a different situation than you would be making that same call now. Yeah, definitely. The adoption definitely was not there, um, especially the offers that I was looking at was in football, which was even less um, in terms of the adoption. And mm-hmm. the teams was like, it was usually like one person on a team. And now you have front offices that have entire engineering staffs and that sort of thing. So yeah, it was it was a very different environment. But also just the main thing is the adoption, right? If, you, if I felt yeah. like I was going to go in and nobody was going to care what I had to say, then um, what's the value in being there? On that note of sorts, we ask almost everyone, like, what are the keys to communicating the data? So we talked about the front end tool and having that be intuitive and how important that is. Uh, any other things that you found particularly important in communicating data, whether it's to a team, whether it's to you know, someone at FanDuel or to the public, keys to getting information across in clean, easy to understand ways? Yeah, I think I would just echo what I said before, which is simple, as simple as you can possibly make it to start with. Mm-hmm. And then um, if people are curious about more of the details, you can get into the weeds with them. Um, Obviously, graphs and images of any sort are going to be fairly helpful as opposed to reading paragraphs of text. But you just want something that's like very simple and intuitive and specifically catered to the audience is is the best way. And the best way to do that is you actually, if you can talk to your audience, if it's like a stakeholder in your company, you talk to them and say, you bounce ideas off them. And if it's a customer, then you can do um, surveys and interviews to see kind of how you think they would adopt different things, testing, A-B testing, that sort of thing. So a lot of your work involves predictive models. What's different about doing work where the goal is to predict and look forward compared to uh, backward looking analysis or, you know, ESPN 
you and I did a lot of storytelling. So you're looking at what happened instead of uh, looking forward. So what's different about that predictive type of modeling compared to looking backward and doing analytics? Yeah, when you're talking about data science and analytics in general, it's kind of the the 1.0 versus 2.0 is doing the reporting versus uh, doing the predictive stuff. I would argue that I think the reporting in general is more important to start because you kind of have to have a base of reporting um, and an understanding for the types of things that you're looking for in order to move forward to that predictive step. With the predictive step, um, you really need to understand probability and be able to communicate probability because Mm -hmm. a lot of people, if you tell them there's a 70% chance of something happening, assume that it's going to happen when there's a pretty high chance that it's not going to happen. And you also have to have the stomach for quote unquote, getting it wrong, right? Because when you're in the nature of probability, you're going to be wrong a whole lot. So that's why I would say that's kind of the most important part is just having that general understanding of how probability works. Any key, um, well, this methodology or phrasing or whatever it is, is you're trying to communicate probability to people to get them understand what you said that 70% does not equal 100%. Yeah, I think I try to use just really uh, simple explanations, um, whether it's just doing analogies with coin flips or that sort of thing Mm -hmm. to show that like, Hey, there's still a very good chance that this is not going to happen. So again, simpler is always better, but it's tough because a lot of people see anything over 50% as this is happening and anything under is, this is not going to happen. Yeah. I'm curious how you watch a game, maybe an NBA game. We'll say, so if you sit down, let's say you're not a fan of the teams, you're not working at the time. You just sit on the couch watching a game. How are your wheels turning inside your head as you just sit there and try to enjoy a basketball game? Yeah, so I don't think it's that much different from before I got into mm-hmm. uh, this field. But part of that is because my mentality has always been, how can I find inefficiencies in what I'm doing? How can I find the loophole? Um, like, it's not very much fun playing games with me because I'm trying to <laughs> find those loopholes. So um, when I'm watching a game, I'm looking to see if people are being as efficient as possible, if if there's rules that could be exploited, that sort of thing. But in general, I'm just watching to enjoy the elite level of talent. So, so you're able to turn it off a little bit if if you're just sitting on the couch at least and not actually working. Yeah, I would say turn it off in the sense that I'm still analyzing it because that's right. what I was doing before I was even into yeah. this. But yeah, you're not taking that next step. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not calculating effective field goal percentage as I'm watching the game. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, so I have to ask your your wife Zoe Almquist is the Davidson field hockey coach. I, I, I know what field hockey is in the very basics and such, but I don't know much about say the state of analytics in field hockey. So is there data in there? Are you helping her with things like that? What do you uh, What do we know about the state of analytics in field hockey? Yeah, I'm definitely definitely helping her where I can. Um, the there's not much field hockey analytics out there. There's a little bit. Um, but in particular, in the collegiate world, there's not a ton. Although I've actually learned over the last year that there's a couple of the couple of the better teams are doing stuff, um, mostly around like uh, video analysis, especially when you right. have more resources. That some of the, I would say, more well-off teams have um, a lot of staff to to help right. with that sort of thing. But similar to any like collegiate football or collegiate basketball program, there's analytics that can be done for the in-game analysis, and there's analytics that can be done around recruiting. Um, which is again the same as pro teams where you're trying to do draft type stuff that's usually the lowest hanging fruit and then uh, the in-game stuff where you can again find inefficiencies in field hockey there's set plays called corners which are kind of a combination of a penalty kick and a corner kick in soccer Mm -hmm. and they lead to a huge portion of the scoring so if you can do analysis around the most efficient corners uh, against certain teams or in general um, that's gonna add a couple a couple percent to your win probability 
Uh, so that would look a lot like soccer. Like, uh, you know, this keeper is susceptible to near post runs or something in soccer. So it'd be similar sort of things, kind of charting things out and finding strengths and weaknesses of teams or, or yourself on things like that. Yep, exactly. Field hockey in general is very similar to soccer um, with the exception of how important, like the, the set pieces in field hockey are even more important than soccer. Okay. Nice. All right. I want to wrap things up with our playing favorite segment where we rip through a number of your favorites. So we'll start with your favorite number and why. Uh, so my favorite number, I would say, is probably 17. Uh, it was seven for a while. And then I think somebody else had the jersey. So I ended up rocking 17 when I was growing up playing sports. The favorite player for you growing up as a kid? So I got into baseball first. Um, huge Phillies fan from the kind of mid-90s. I actually went to a one of the 93 World Series games when they were nice. uh, against the Blue Jays, although I was a little too young to like really understand what was going on. So I was a huge Mariano Duncan fan. He played uh, <laughs> shortstop and then Darren Dalton and then a, a huge Griffey fan just because everybody right. loved Griffey at the time. Right. Anyone growing up in the 90s for sure. Favorite yeah. game you've attended in person? Uh, so my wife and I love going to the big events. So we've been to all the tennis majors except for Wimbledon, a couple nice. of the golf majors and field hockey World Cup. And I actually went with my parents to the 99 US Opener Women's World Cup, which was awesome. But individual game, I would say was, I think it was in 2013 or 2014, uh, Northwestern football played at Notre Dame. And I went to that game and uh, we were losing by a bunch. Trevor Simeon uh, threw a touchdown and two-point conversion with like, three or four minutes left and then Notre Dame was icing the game and the running back fumbled basically when the game was over we got it went down kicked a field goal went into overtime stopped them and then kicked a field goal and won in overtime so it was pretty cool to be at Notre Dame and have us win nice yeah that's great so you mentioned you're a Philly guy so I have to ask the requisite food question do you have a favorite uh, cheesesteak in or around Philadelphia yeah, I'm definitely a Pats guy. Um, and then secondary to Pats is probably actually Larry's, which is right near where I'm from. And finally, a favorite how did I get here moment, meaning one of those moments where you're just able to kind of soak in where you've gotten and think this is this is pretty cool where, where I'm going career-wise. Yeah, I would say so Some for some reason, I got selected to Forbes's 30 under 30 um, mm-hmm. list a couple of years back. And uh, they invited us, everyone who was on there, not the athletes, but everyone else um, down to John Paul de Horia's house in uh, Texas. Um, he's like the shampoo gel conglomerate guy. And so okay. I'm at this party in his backyard and like Shaq is there and we're chatting <laughs> up Shaq and on the bus, they're trying to sell us like private airplanes and that sort of thing. And I was like, I don't, don't know how I got here. This is, this is very interesting. Uh, oh, that's a great story. And I like the list that I think you have it as a Twitter header of it's like your name right between, I forget what it is, like Durant and Westbrook or, or yeah, something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I definitely belong up there with my athletic prowess for sure. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good story to end with and a fun one. So Keith Goldner, vice president of data science, sports modeling innovation at FanDuel. Thanks for joining us here on expected value. Thanks so much for having me. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to FanDuel's Keith Goldner for joining us on the show. Follow Keith on Twitter at Keith Goldner, G-O-L-D-N-E-R, and check our show notes for links to Keith's personal site and various work that he's done. I'm joined now by Albert Larcata, True Media Senior Director of Data Science. Uh, Albert, what did you take away from the conversation with Keith? 
Yeah, a few things. Um, the most interesting part to me was the the conversation about non sports analytics work, like how you get started, um, what you do once you're in, things like that. Two things that stood out from what he said. One of them I think is said often, but I, I'll also echo and agree with the best way to get started entry level, do good work, start a blog or find some other way to get your work out publicly. That's how people find you. He, he mentioned the Sam Hinkie example, the Rockets, how they, that's how they found some of their guys. That's true across sports. That's been true for a long time. A lot of other people have written about it. Totally agree with that. The other thing that, in my opinion, doesn't show up as much in these, how do you break into sports analytics type pieces is the networking aspect. He mentioned that the internships he had with Oklahoma City and Philadelphia and then eventually ESPN was so much more about the networking than any specific task or skill that he learned there, which I completely agree with. Somewhat of an aside, I find the same thing is true about all of these sports analytics conferences that are out there now, the Sloan conferences and whatnot. It's so much more about networking, seeing people that you only see once a year, meeting new people than anything related to the content of those conferences. I mean, the work these people do are awesome. The new papers and you know new research everyone's releasing is awesome. But for an attendee, in my opinion, the real value of those is much more about the networking aspect of it. So yeah, those were the two things I took away most. Yeah, networking's an interesting thing to me. When I was in college and coming out of college, I maybe I was anti-networking almost. I just had this mindset that, hey, what I do should speak for itself. And yeah, in a perfect world, it should. And that's just not how the world works, I think, really in any business. And so it took me a while to kind of come around to that. But I mean, I got my first job at a radio station in large part because I knew somebody who used to work there. And it took me a while to kind of figure that out, probably even till I was at ESPN to really understand the value of networking. Part of that's just my personality too, not as much of an outgoing type of person. But yeah, the value is tough to match. And I'm just looking at our last few guests to go to your point, your first point about how to get your name out there. Brian Burke started a website, got a job. Dean Oliver, you know, had a website and a book, and that's how he got in the NBA. Uh, Namita Nanda Kumar basically started presenting or writing papers for conferences and doing things online. And that's how she got into the analytics world. So to the first point about just get the work out there. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And then to you know, circle back to the networking thing, you mentioned the conferences. I'm super interested to see, and this is not a sports analytics specific thing, but really just business in general. How are all these conferences going to function in the next, we'll just say year or in this new time? You know, We've seen a lot of stuff go online only, things like the Sounders Analytics Conference, which is great in some aspects because they're a lot cheaper and more accessible. And you still get the content, the, the presentations, the meetings, you know, they make papers and such available. But you lose that networking side. And that's, like I said, a lot of the value. And so I don't, I don't know, is there going to be a Sloan next year? Right. No, totally. And even if there is, I mean, who's paying $800 or whatever right. it is they charge? Like, yeah, right. I mean, e- even lately, like, I, I think I've been to every Sloan conference since 20, I don't know, 2010, I think, 10 years mm-hmm. or so. But it seems like each year, like the last two or three years, I probably spend 98 plus percent of my time either in the hallways, in the hotel lobby right next door, in a meeting room in the adjacent hotel. Yeah. I'm, I'm not there for the content. I'm, I'm there for the networking. And you just, you're not going to get that with re- remote conferences. So totally agree. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but the value, in my opinion, the value add these conferences add is 
mm-hmm. yeah, in a tough spot. It'll be interesting to track again, not just this industry, but every industry is going to be facing this. The one other thought I had, first of all, I'd really like hearing Keith's thoughts on his big decision making, you know, join a startup, join a team straight out of college. I think that's super interesting and, you know, something a lot of people will face. And it was a different time then than making that same decision now. Uh, and then I liked what he said about kind of in the interview process or in the getting your foot in the door process about having work that is geared toward the goal of the organization you're trying to join is really important. Uh, it seems kind of obvious. And I think it goes for any job. If you want a job, you show how you fit in with what they're doing. I mean, there's value in, as he said, having an NCAA tournament prediction model if you're trying to get in with an NBA team. There's something to that because it shows work, it shows the kind of things you do. But if you want that next step in that process, it's how is what you're doing matching their goals? So show how uh, it helps a team win, show how it helps make players better, things like that. When I interviewed for ESPN, I tried to emphasize, here's what I'm doing on my radio show that is similar to how a researcher would generate notes for an ESPN show, stuff like that. So just trying to show that you're thinking in similar ways and answering similar questions, all points toward that same goal of whatever it is, of winning, of making players better, of making a show better, or whatever it might be. All right. Thanks, Albert. That'll wrap things up for this episode of Expected Value. Thanks again to Keith Goldner, VP of Modeling and Innovation at FanDuel, for joining us on the show. Be sure to check our archives for more great conversations. Recent guests, as mentioned, Brian Burke of ESPN, Dean Oliver, assistant coach with the Wizards, Namita Nanda Kumar of the Seattle Kraken. And while you're there, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And follow us on Twitter, at True Media Sports, sending out various notes and graphics and articles throughout the week. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.